I'm going to go right into the message this morning, and I'm, I'm hoping and believing that it's going to encourage you and that you will... Uh, I just really had the sense this morning that God wants to help us see the gospel in greater measure. You know, it's so easy to hear the gospel without hearing the gospel. It's so easy to sit uh, listening to sermons week after week after week after week and still not quite have the penny drop in our spirits and in our hearts regarding the gospel and regarding what it is that Jesus has done for us and regarding uh, where our trust lies as people who have faith in Jesus, who believe in Jesus and, and who know Jesus. And, uh, and so I, I really always want to encourage us as a church to do what Scripture says, which is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who, who gave you the, the faith that you have and is also perfecting it. Even doing the will of God, the Bible says it is God who works in us to both do, to will and to do. So he doesn't just call you to do things, but he gives you the will to do them, which is really where our battle lies, isn't it? When our wills clash with the will of God, when we want to do what we want to do, and God is calling us for greater things that's going to uh, bless us far greater, in far greater ways than what we could be blessed by doing our own things. And so there's the battle of wills that happens within us, and it's often described in Scripture as a battle between the flesh, who we are, and a battle of the spirit. And God wants to take us into a place where following Him and trusting in Him through the gospel causes us just to be led by the spirit with ease. We love to follow the spirit. It's a joy for us to listen to what God has for our lives and to walk after Him and to trust in Him and to grow and to, and to live a life that's, that's selfless. Uh, which is something which no matter how much money you have, no matter how many self-help courses you've gone to, no matter how many books you've read, uh, people just, it just it's, it, it's never within their grasp. As people, we cannot do the will of God in our own strength. It's never within our grasp, no matter how hard we try. That's what it tells us in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of doing the things that God has called us to do. And so today we're in John chapter number 17, and one of the things I love about this chapter is how Jesus says, he speaks about glory, and he, and he says that, that like mankind, we've lost, we lost that glory, we fell short of the glory of God. But Jesus in this moment, in John 17, begins to pray, not only for the disciples that were in that room that day, but he prays for us as well. He prays for all those who would believe in him. And he says, God, that, that as, as you have glorified me and I have glorified you, speaking to the Father, he says, I have given my glory to them. He restores the glory of our humanity. He restores the glory of us as children of God. A glory that we had lost through sin is recovered through the gospel. And, um, and so we're in John chapter number 17. And it feels like we have uh, been in one room for five weeks now. Um, and I'm not talking about this room because you all know we were in Studio Blue last week. Um, but this upper room where Jesus sat with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Literally from chapters 13 is when they entered into the room and Jesus said he knew that his time now was near. And here we're in chapter 17 and Jesus is still, this is still one conversation. And Jesus ends this conversa conversation in chapter 17 uh, with a prayer with praying for his, his disciples. He knows that his time has come. He strengthens his followers, his friends, his believers in the gospel. He says to them, you believe in God, believe also in me. E even when it seems like everything's gonna go 
going to become havoc and chaos in a few moments. He knows what lies ahead and, and, and the pressure that they'll face. He says, but believe in me. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to share more with you later, but you can only bear so much at this time. And then he prays for them. And I want to look at that prayer today because I believe it is so, so significant. Not just what Jesus prays, but, but the, the, the time in the timeline of Jesus' life at which he prays. The very fact that Jesus chooses this moment to offer up a prayer to the Father in the presence of, of his disciples. Have you ever just thought about that? Can you imagine if, if Jesus was here physically with us today? We know that he's here through his Holy Spirit, but can you imagine if, if Jesus was just, just sitting here and we said, hey, Jesus, won't you just come up and pray for us today? How many of you would be just, okay, I want to know what Jesus is saying right now as he prays. I want, to, I want to hear what Jesus would pray if he was praying over my life in this moment today. So we're going to go to John chapter number 17 and uh, verse 1. I'm going to read these first five verses. So if you have your Bibles, John 17 verse 1 to 5. I'm going to share a message with you this morning entitled, The Prayer of Jesus. So significant, The Prayer of Jesus. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Bible says when the Son of Man, when, when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. That's how God draws people to himself by lifting up his son, by putting Jesus on the cross. So Jesus says, my hour has come, glorify your son, lift up your son, raise up your son, that your son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus gives eternal life. In the glorification of Jesus, he gives eternal life to all who were given to him. And this is eternal life. Where do we find eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. How do we have eternal life? By knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom God sent. We're going to uh, go into John chapter number 17 a little bit more today and kind of parallel it with Hebrews chapter number 10, some incredible stuff that we see in, in the scriptures there. And, and so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this. Jesus, we thank you so much today just for your faithfulness to speak, your faithfulness to reveal. Uh, Lord, that's what we're praying for today. Reveal yourself in a greater measure. Open up our eyes, open up our hearts, uh, open up our understanding that we may see and know who you are, that we may know the Father and trust in, in you, Jesus, who, who died for us on the cross. We pray today, Lord God, uh, Father, that you, would, that you would speak to us through your Spirit, encourage us, empower us in faith, in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever been through a really big shift in your life? Just a really big shift. As you live your life, you realize that you go through seasons which at the time you don't always know are changing. But when you look back, you realize, man, my life has really changed a lot. There's so much that, that used to be a part of my life that is no longer a part of my life. Or there's so much that I used to be involved in or that my heart was given to that's, that's no longer a part of my life. And, and it's amazing at how different our lives can look within a, a short 
space of time. As a family, uh, we have gone through several big shifts where we can't believe how different our lives are now from what it was two years ago or what it was three years ago, what it was five years ago. I mean, there's, there's just in the last five or six years, we've been through so many big shifts and big transitions that's completely changed our lives. And when you think back on a previous season, your life can change so much within a couple of years that, that it can almost feel like it was 100 years ago, even though it was only like two or three years ago, right? That's, that's how quickly our lives can change. My wife and I, for example, can't remember what it feels like anymore to not have kids. We spoke about this the other day. Like, if, if you have young kids, you're like, what was life like before we had kids? That's why when we find out that somebody's pregnant, we're like, just go to the movies, please. <laughs> just like every night, if you can, if you have the money for it, just keep going to the movies. Just enjoy it. Uh, you know, enjoy putting down your keys and finding them in the same place again afterwards. Just enjoy the little things like that because we know how much having children changes your life. You guys are in for an amazing time. Um, we can't remember what it feels like to have eight hours of sleep every night. Uh, you know, when you, when you see young people like, oh, we're so, so tired, something on the inside of us just bursts out laughing because we're like, you don't know what tired is. You have no idea what it means to be tired. To not have to go to Kitty's birthday parties on, on Saturday afternoons. Like I used to watch, one, there was one particular year where I watched every single Super Rugby game, every single one of them, whether it was a New Zealand game, an Australian game, okay, it was only the Super 12 and not the Super 500 like we have right now, but, but I watched every single one of the games. I knew every player. Now, I have to pick my one favorite game of the weekend, and I really just put my foot down when it's like a Springbok game, because when I get to the TV, um, Jude is watching Big Hero 6 for the 50 millionth time, and there is no way I'm switching that over to a rugby game. No, and you just, you have to let it go. I sometimes just check the score on Twitter because I can't get access to the one TV I have in my house. And so life changes in a, in a, in a big way. There's a, there's a big shift that happens. And when it comes to our Bibles, when it comes to Scripture, there's a massive shift that happens in Scripture. There's a big change that the entire Bible, it, it's so big that it splits not only our entire Bibles in two, but it splits human history in two. A shift in Scripture that is so big that it literally splits everything into two categories, all the stuff that happened before and all the stuff that's happened since. A massive shift in Scripture, that split time itself in two. And that split, that, that moment that, that splits all of history and that splits the entire Bible, the Word of God, into two separate sections was the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the arrival of the Son of God, the promised Messiah, who came down to this earth, who lived on this earth for 33 years, ministered for the last three of those years in power, empowered by the Holy Spirit, healing all those that were brought to him and preaching the word of God and teaching them the things about the kingdom of God and then going to the cross to become the complete sacrifice for all of our sins. And the Bible says not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 
That's what Jesus did in that moment as he, as he died on the cross. It was a history-splitting moment. And so it's no wonder that if you read Scripture and you read about what happened at the time that Jesus died when he was on the cross, it says that the moment that he declared it is finished and he breathed out his last, it says that darkness covered the earth for three hours. Everything just became dark. And there was an earthquake that shook the earth so that literally rocks were being split into two at the magnitude of this quake. It tells us that in the temple, the, the veil that, that separated people from the most holy place where the presence of God was kept was torn. That curtain was, was more than an inch thick. It was torn in two from top to bottom. And it even tells us that the graves, many of the graves in Jerusalem were opened up. And in this prophetic moment, people who were once dead were seen walking through the streets of Jerusalem again. It's no wonder that stuff happened in this moment that separates all of human history between that which happened before and that which has happened since. And this was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament's kind of basically like that nagging friend that stands next to you going, you know what, this is going to happen. You know what, it's, gonna, it's coming. You know what, it's almost here. You know what, and, and this is what the Old Testament's doing again and again. We reread it and we see laws and we see all kinds of stories and we, and we often take different things out of that. People have taken so much out of the Old Testament. But at the core of it, what it is, is it's the Old Testament's going, yep, the Messiah's coming. Yes, the prophecy will be fulfilled. Yes, I'm going to change everything. There's a shift coming. There's a great shift coming between the old covenant and the new covenant. I'm going to do a new thing, says God. I'm going to, I'm going to bring the, the salvation, the, the eternal salvation through my son Jesus. And, and it's again and again and again. It's prophesied. It's illustrated. Picture after picture, it shows us about Jesus. It's kind of like when a big shift happens in your life. and you, It feels like it happens all of a sudden. But after some time passes, when you, when you look with it in hindsight you realize that the signs were there all along that that shift was coming. The signs were there all along that, that there was something new that was going to be birthed. Like when your tummy started to grow, Militia, you, you knew this is a sign, something's coming. My life's going to change. And there were these, these, these birth pains, there were these signs that showed us that change is coming. And even now we're in a time where we still await the final redemption of all things. And there are, as Jesus said, birth pains. Matthew 24, he spoke about these are the kinds of things that you're going to see. And we're already seeing that shaking in our world today. We already know that God is preparing the church. We already know that, that we are living in times where, where God is, is, is about to fulfill all the promises um, of God towards us. So just like we, we look back at shifts in our lives and realize that the shifts, that the signs were there all along, we see this in the Old Testament. And one example that I wanted to just lift out today for you is, is the example of Abraham and Isaac. The story of Abraham of, of, uh, and Isaac is an amazing story. We know that, that Abraham and his wife Sarah received a promise from God. And that promise was that they would have a son, that they would have children, and that their descendants would be like the stars in the sky that through Abraham and his descendants, all of the earth will be blessed. 
All the families of the earth will be blessed. If you ever hear, hear about the, the blessing of Abraham, it was this blessing that God spoke out over Abraham, and not only to Abraham, but to all of his descendants. And so God gives Abraham this, this, this promise of a son. The promise of a son. And then they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they get older and older, and it seems less likely and less likely, and they, they begin to doubt. I mean, there's one point where God shows up, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield, and your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham says, oh God, what will you give me? Like, where is this promise? The heir of my house is, is Eleazar. I don't have a son. I don't have descendants. You've promised all these things, and where is it, God? I don't see it. And God just, he takes, he actually takes Abraham from inside of his tent. He takes him out and he says, look at the stars. Have I not promised you that your descendants will be like the stars of the sky? And it says, Abraham put his faith, his trust in God. And that is what was accredited to him as righteousness. It's faith. It was always faith. It was never the law that produced righteousness in people's lives. And so he, he looks to God. He trusts in God. He believes in God. But he still waits. And at the age of 99, after having tried to come up with his own plan, which backfired, which wasn't God's plan for his life. That's oftentimes what we do when God delays, is we try and make our own plans. But eventually the son of promise, Isaac, arrived. And Isaac is, it's a type of Jesus. It's, it, Isaac, the Bible says that the promise wasn't in Abraham, but it was actually in Isaac, it tells us in Romans. And Isaac is this type of Jesus. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of Jesus. So Abraham has his son. Son is born, young, young uh, strong boy, and, and, and he loves his dad, and Abraham loves his son. And then at one point, God says something crazy to Abraham. He says, Abraham, but, but listen to the language with how God says it. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. And I want you to go to the region of Moriah, to the mount which I will show you. And there I want you to sacrifice him. I mean, Abraham has got to be like, you've got to be kidding me, God. I have been waiting for 20 years for this son. And now you're asking me to sacrifice him. But remember, Abraham believed in God, which was accredited to him in, as righteousness. And the Bible says that Abraham was obedient to God because he knew that even if he sacrificed his son, that God would be able to raise him from the dead. Does this sound like Jesus? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the mount that I will show you. And Abraham goes, I'll do it, God, because I believe you can raise him from the dead. And so God takes Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac, his son, and he walks with his son, to this mount that God shows him in the area of, of Moriah. And they walk up this mountain, and, 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 and Isaac doesn't know what's going on yet, because if you're about to sacrifice your son, you don't kind of let him know beforehand. So he just takes his son, and, and he takes the wood, and he puts it on his back. Isaac's got to carry the wood up the hill. Just like Jesus carried the wooden cross up that hill. 
and Isaac even turns to his dad and he says, but dad, like I see the wood, you know, I see the, I see the fire. We have all the elements. Where's the sacrifice? You know what Abraham says? God will provide. God will provide the sacrifice. And so they walk up this hill. They build the altar on the specific hill that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son on. And he takes Isaac. And, and I think at this point, it must have been a pretty awkward conversation. Abraham was, was waiting to see maybe God had another plan. Maybe he would do something else. And at this moment, he realizes, no, it's really going to happen. And he has that awkward conversation with his son where he's like, son, you're the sacrifice. You're the one. And I can imagine just what that conversation must have been like. But Isaac, even seeing the faith that his dad has in the power of God, gets onto the altar. Gets onto the altar himself. And, and as Abraham is about to, to plunge the knife through his son's heart, God stops him. This is a picture of the great shift that we're talking about. God stops him from sacrificing his own son. And he says, do your son no harm because I have provided a ram for the sacrifice. And in that moment, they see a ram caught in a thicket. And Abraham unties his son, gets off the altar, and they sacrifice that, that ram together. The whole thing is so clearly and obviously a prophecy about Jesus. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to the mount in the region of Moriah. Carry the wood up the hill and sacrifice him there. Now that hill, that same hill, is, is identified as the temple mount. The, the hill where the temple stood for centuries and where sacrifices were made Year after year after year after year, especially on the Day of Atonement for all the people of Israel. That same place where the sacrifice of Isaac almost took place, where God said he would provide, rams were, were, were offered up as sacrifices for years in ancient Israel. The high priests, according to the law of Moses, on the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year, would take a bull, and first of all, sacrifice that bull for their own sins, to cleanse themselves. They would wash themselves, dress very specifically as God told them, would take the, the bull and, and, and sacrifice the bull for their, for, them, for their own sins. And once they had done that, they would take two rams and go to the temple and cast a lot. And one ram would be sacrificed and the blood of that lamb would be sprinkled on the mercy seat in the most holy place. The other ram, they would lay their hands on, on that ram or on that goat and, and transfer symbolically the sins of all the people of Israel onto that ram, onto that goat, and then release him through a specific gate into the wilderness to suffer and to die on behalf of the people of Israel. That was what, what happened for, for years and years and years according to the law of Moses to atone for the sins of the people. But this was only a foreshadowing of what Jesus was, was going to do. And the shift was going to come where that would no longer be necessary. 
because God would deal with, for, deal with the sins of his people once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus. So when I read the story about Abraham, I see the shift. I see God declaring this is what's gonna happen because the moment Abraham has that knife above his head about to make a human sacrifice, a sacrifice made in the strength of, of, of humanity and of our own flesh, God stops him and says, no, I don't want your human sacrifices anymore. I don't want your fleshly sacrifices. I don't want your hollow actions. I don't want you to just obey laws and rules. I will provide. I will provide a sacrifice that will change your heart, that will change your life. There's a split coming. There's a shift coming that, that's gonna split time. The time when people had to sacrifice according to the law and the time when we walked in the finished work of Christ and the grace of God. That's ultimately what that shift is. So all of Scripture, Old Testament, which means an, an old covenant between us and God and a new covenant in His blood, in Jesus. All of Scripture leads towards this movement from humans sacrificing themselves in order to please God. And, and I don't just mean sacrificing on an altar. I mean the way that we sacrifice oftentimes uh, things because we think that's what's going to earn favor with God. It's just another form of, of human sacrifice, whenever we're doing it to earn God's favor. So there's a movement from humans sacrificing themselves in order to please God, to God offering his own sacrifice, his son, the ram caught in the thicket. Some of us, and many Christians in fact, want to live out our faith according to these sacrifices of the law rather than according to the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, some of us haven't made the shift yet. Some of us haven't moved yet from, from trying to earn God's favor in our own strength, from trying to do everything right so that God can be pleased with us, to trusting in what Jesus has done. We've still got the knife up here. And God's saying, no, I have already provided I have already provided the sacrifice. I have already finished the work. We want to offer our human efforts so often on the altar rather than trusting in the finished work of the cross. So I wanna just show you this because I'm saying some bold things here today. And I wanna just show you this, that when I preach these kinds of things, I don't wanna just preach things like the scripture says that in the final days, People will find teachers who would literally tickle their ears, say nice things. Oh, you know, we don't have to sacrifice according to the law anymore. We can just walk in the grace of God. Hey, that sounds like a great deal. Let's do that. But I want to show you that this is actually the hardest thing that we can do. It's the hardest thing. Trusting and resting in the grace of God is the hardest thing that we can do. It is the narrow road. Because what we want to do very desperately in our hearts is stand in our own strength. We want our own dignity, our own respect. We want to make our own way. Our world covets that. We, 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 we adore that when people make their own way. But as people dependent upon Jesus, we don't make our own way. We trust in the Father who has made a way for us before we were even born. We don't want to claim our own as anything, the Bible says, as anything coming from ourselves. It all comes by the grace of God. So let's look at it in Scripture, Hebrews 10 Verse one to four. 
It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. It was just a shadow. The lamb dying for the sacrifices, the, the, the rams and the bulls and all of those things that were atoning for the sins, that were covering, not removing the sins of the people of Israel, they were only a shadow, a foreshadowing. Like if, you, if you're walking with the sun at your back on, uh, at sunset and you can see your shadow walking out ahead of you, the Old Testament and the law only foreshadows Jesus. The law was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, the law, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's why you have to come back every year. It can, it can never make you perfect. You have to go back again and again and again and again. It's kind of like washing your car. You wash your car, and for two days, you're like, man, my car looks great. And then there's some rain, as it inevitably will happen. There's some rain that falls on your car, or, you know, some, some, some road works, or, you know, I, I don't know if this has happened to you guys, but for me, whenever I wash my car, I can almost be guaranteed that that day, somebody will drive past a puddle next to me and splash my car, or, or there'll be some weird thing. The other day, I washed my car and I was, I was driving somewhere, and a pipe had burst next to the road, and it was spraying the biggest bow of water directly over the road, and I had to, I had to go. It was, I was like, I can't believe this. It's, it's winter, there's no rain, but rain has been provided because I washed my car. So, so that's what it's like when you offer human sacrifices. It's never perfect. It can never perfect you. You have to go back again and again and again and again. It says, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? If there was a sacrifice that could perfect us, wouldn't it cause these sacrifices to cease to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Man, there's some power stuff in here. There's some controversial stuff in here. If there was one sacrifice that could cleanse us and make us perfect before God, we wouldn't need to offer more sacrifices for perfection. We would not even have that consciousness of sin anymore. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You see, when you, I don't know if you've, if you've ever done stuff wrong, and then when you do something wrong, you feel like being super committed on the other side. You kind of swing on the pendulum of sin and, 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 and making up for your sin. Because of, of this, when we make those sacrifices in order to earn more of God's forgiveness, we're actually making ourselves more and more aware of how sinful we are. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. So the law was just a shadow, not the true form. And the law can never truly remove our sins. Otherwise, we would have no more consciousness of sin. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That we could live free of the consciousness of sin? In other words, 
if you're looking at yourself and you see yourself constantly as an unredeemed sinner and you're walking every day going, oh, I'm such a sinner and I just got to fix this and I just got to fix this and I just got to fix this. So many Christians walk around focused completely on themselves and how much they need to improve. But what the scripture says is thinking about your own sinfulness actually makes you more conscious of sin, which makes you sin more. But if we knew that there was one sacrifice to remove all of our sins, we would become, instead of sin consciousness, we would have Christ consciousness. In other words, God doesn't want you dwelling on your own sinfulness constantly. He wants you to see yourself in a brand new way. He wants you to be conscious of your righteousness because one sacrifice has been offered for our sins once and for all. Let's carry on there. Hebrews 10 verse 5. Everybody still with me this morning? I know there's a lot to look at with all these amazing windows around us. But if you can, let's try. Okay, let's go to Hebrews 10 verse 5. He carries on. If there was one sacrifice that could clear sin, we wouldn't have a sin consciousness. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Just pause there for a moment. This is another prayer. Jesus is praying again because he's talking to the Father. And he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. You've sent me as a sacrifice in this body. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. All the prophecies, all the things that were written, all the, the, the nagging friend constantly saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Jesus arrives and he goes, okay, God, you have taken no pleasure in all of these human sacrifices. You don't want Abraham to kill Isaac. You have offered me the true sacrifice. You've prepared this body so that I could, so I am here, God, to do your will. This is what Jesus prays. You know why this is so significant? You know why the prayer of Jesus in John chapter number 17 is so significant? Because one of the things that the high priest would do every year on the Day of Atonement, after he had sacrificed the bull for his own sins and, and cleansed himself and, and, and taken a complete bath according to, to the, the ceremonial rites, he would then stand before the most holy place in the inner part of the, temp, of the temple, in the most holy place, and right before you go into the most holy place or the holy of holies where God's presence was, that was God's throne on the earth, on the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. The last thing that he would do before he goes in is pray. Before he took in the blood of the, of the goats that had been sacrificed for the sins of all of the nation of Israel, he would say a prayer known as the high priestly prayer. Just like we see here in Hebrews 10. And the high priest would take the prayers. There was an altar of prayer or an altar of incense. And he would take that burning incense 
into the most holy place, symbolic of the prayers of the people coming before God, being, getting access, gaining access to God, fellowship with God. Man, this, this stuff is enough, it's, it, it blows, blows my mind. So John chapter number 17, Jesus is in the room with his disciples on the night that he is about to be betrayed and arrested. And what we find in the next four verse chapters that we have left in the book of John is the crucifixion of Jesus. He is literally the goat that God has chosen, the ram, the lamb that God has chosen, the sacrifice that is about to go into that sacrifice. And what he does is he prays. It's the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays before he goes to become the sacrifice. The big difference is that unlike an earthly high priest, he didn't need to offer up a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. He himself was the sacrifice. The high priest himself was sacrificed for us. As God sent his own son in the flesh to go to the cross for every one of us, for our sins. So Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer. And he is about to take all of the prayers that we have prayed directly into the presence of God. All of our cries for salvation, all of our cries for God to be involved with our lives, all of our cries for a future and, and, and for salvation, cries that could never be heard because of, this, of how sin had separated us from the Father. Jesus takes them with him. That's why we called our church, we don't have the banner up today, but that's why we called our church Anchor Church. Because earlier on in Hebrews 6, it tells us that Jesus has taken us in behind the veil, and there he has anchored us in God's presence. In other words, you don't get into God's presence on a Sunday when you come to church and then you leave God's presence once you get into your car and then you wait to get back into God's presence at a connect group and then you leave God's presence once you leave the connect group and then you wait to get back in God's presence when you come on a Sunday morning just so that you can leave God's presence again. No, by one sacrifice, Jesus has anchored us in the presence of God. That's, that's why we called our church Anchor Church. We're anchored in His presence. We're anchored in Jesus. We're anchored in the most holy place. It's where we live. We don't, we don't try and enter the most holy place. We don't try and enter the throne room of God. We live in the throne room of God. Do you know how much more worshipful we would become if we realized that we're not struggling to try and get into God's presence, but we actually live there? That every part of your life is a part of living out your worship before God? That when you go uh, to work or when you, when you are at home with your family or whatever you may do, that it is all a part of you being in the presence of God. So many of us have fought for so long to try and get into God's presence. But you live there. Do you believe that this morning? You live in God's presence. You've been anchored in His throne room. Jesus has taken our prayers to the throne. Hebrews 10 verse 8 he continues, when he, had, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered 
according to the law. So God takes no pleasure in, of, in offerings made according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is. That's the shift. That's the shift of Scripture. He takes away the first, the old covenant, the process of the law, so that he may establish the second. Another scripture tells us that the second, the second covenant, the covenant of God's grace, is a better covenant established on better promises. We live in the new covenant. We live in the New Testament, not according to the law. Jesus says, I've come to do your will. What was the will? To cause the shift. To do away with the first in order that he may establish the second. How did he establish the second? That by that second covenant, we will have been, sac- uh, by that will ha- we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. No more continuous sacrifices that need to be made. A once for all kind of sacrifice. And that's the shift. That's where the grace of God floods into this world. That's where we are sanctified once and for all and our sin consciousness is redeemed to become Christ conscious. Not walking according to the old, but according to the new. And then it tells us that Jesus goes, in verse 11, Hebrews 10 verse 11, I'm just going through a passage here. Hebrews 10 verse 11, it says, And every priest, talking about high priests in Israel, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what we still sometimes do as priests in our own lives. We stand every day offering the same sacrifices, thinking it could take away our sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for, a, for all time, for all of time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus goes and dies once, complete sacrifice, once for all, and then he sits down, which is symbolic and indicative of the fact that the work is complete. That's what he cried out on the cross, it is finished. He sits down because he is finished. And so the Bible says that we are what with Christ in heavenly places? Seated with Christ in heavenly places. Why? He's done the work. We rest in Jesus. We sit with Jesus in heavenly places. Now here on earth, we do what God has called us to do and we work hard and we build church and we reach our community and we make our lives count, but it never takes away from the fact all of that flows out of our seated position in Christ eternally. He has made one sacrifice for all of us once and for all. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you're seated with him, the work is finished. Watchman Nee says that God works and then he rests. But man must first rest in God before he can truly work. Before we can truly walk in, in fulfilling and, and, and purposeful things in this life, we first need to be seated with Jesus. 
So he sits down at the right hand of God. The right hand is also symbolism for authority. Your right hand is your authority. I remember when my brother and I were younger and we used to have punching matches, which is a little bit, uh, boxing matches, a bit unfair because I was seven years older than him. Um, but that means it was a lot of fun for me. And we only had one pair of, of gloves. And um, for some reason, I gave him the left, even though he was right-handed. I had the right-handed glove. And I remember one time, he had braces at the time, as most 13-year-olds do. And I remember us having this punching match, but you can only use one arm, and the rule was you couldn't go for the face. So I, I did this move where I would punch him with the right hand um, and on the one shoulder, which would turn him, and then when he comes back, I punch him again, you know, to get him to actually fall over. So if I, got, if I got two shots in the same direction, the momentum would get him, to, I would basically knock him down. And so I kept doing this, it was a lot of fun, and then I would like be running around, be like, it's amazing, it's amazing. I remember one specific time when he turned back, I just caught him wrong and I hit him in the mouth with all of those braces, and it was just like blood everywhere, his lips were cut, he was walking, the next day he went to school looking like he had Botox on his lips, he just like these massive like auto, you know, duck, you know, duck, duck pout that he had going on, and um, duck lips, and, and, uh, and, and but it, it's, symbol, it's symbolism for most of us, how our right hand is our, is our strongest hand, it symbolizes the authority of God, so Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Our authority over sin doesn't come from our ability to fight. It comes from the right hand of God where Jesus is seated at the throne. I really believe that God wants there for there to be a major shift in your life. God wants there to be in every person's life one, beyond all the other shifts that may occur, one major shift. And it's the same shift we've been talking about all day, where you go from trusting in your own self, whether that is religiously or irreligiously, because you can trust in your own self going, I don't need the church, I don't need God, I don't need the Bible, I'm going to go out there and live my own life, you're trusting in yourself. Or you can go, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give money and I'm going to do everything I need to do. If you're doing that to earn God's favor, it's still trusting in yourself. So whether religiously or irreligiously, God wants to take us from trusting in ourselves to trusting in his grace, the sacrifice of Jesus. Not living sin consciously, but Christ consciously. He wants to split the timeline of your life in two. Everything that you were before you knew the gospel and everything after. And I can, I can, I can tell you now, if I had the time, the entire story of how I know exactly when God transitioned me in that shift. And it wasn't, it, it, it felt instant, but looking back, there was a whole process. But there's a shift from trusting in myself, even though I was a pastor, even though I was preaching, even though I was working for church full time, there was a shift that God wants for all of us. To trust in Jesus, not just for a moment, but eternally, every day of our lives. Not a new sacrifice every year. The sacrifice of Jesus is always applicable. The Bible tells us that he is a high priest forever. And if he is a high priest forever, if he makes intercession for us even now in heaven, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Look, when you're saved, listen to me this morning, when you're saved, you're saved. 
When you've put your faith in the gospel, your faith is in the gospel. He has saved you to the uttermost. And what some of us need to do is just start trusting that more. We're living sin consciously. We're making certain habits and certain addictions and certain uh, uh, sinful behaviors that we engage in as, in our own minds, more powerful than what Jesus did on the cross. If you're saved, you're saved. And you can, just, you can just go ahead and let Jesus change you. Trust in Him to do that. And the amazing thing is we now have this eternal high priest who is compassionate. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, our confession of faith. Let's hold on to it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. God knows our weaknesses. He knows how we struggle with sin. He knows how we're tempted. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen to what that scripture says. It says that you're gonna be tempted to sin. And when you are tempted to sin, know that God is not sitting up in heaven with his arms crossed going, I can't believe he's tempted again. I can't believe she's doing that again. He's saying God sympathizes because he himself was tempted in every area, yet he was sinless. And so when we're tempted, let us draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need so that we can find what to help us? Grace to help us. So what's gonna help you overcome the temptations of your life? More sin consciousness? No, approach the throne of grace. In other words, when we're tempted, when we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling with addiction, when we're struggling with, with, with bad thoughts, when we're struggling to get our life on track, what do we do? Become more sin conscious and try and fix ourselves? No, we run into the throne room of God because he has perfected forever those who he is now sanctifying. There's nothing that keeps us away. There's nothing that makes us fearful. There's nothing that holds us back from taking everything that God has for us, all the grace that we need in our time of need. It's all there. We run into the throne when we face our weaknesses, not away from it. Into the throne room of God, into the most holy place because Jesus has taken our prayers into his presence. We hold fast to our confession, our confession of faith to get grace to help in time of need. Let's not shift back to human sacrifices when we fail. Let's not shift back to making it all about us when we, when we struggle. Jesus is about to be arrested, John 17, and he prays the prayer of the high priest. John 17, 15, I'm almost done this morning. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. God says, I don't want you to remove these people I'm praying for from the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying for us that God would protect us from the evil one. They are not of the world. Jesus is praying this in front of his people. And so if Jesus was here today, he would pray and he says, God, I'm not praying that you take them out of the city of Joburg. I'm not praying that you take them out of their circumstances or their situations or their temptations or their hardships. I'm praying that you would keep them from the evil one, that they wouldn't lose their faith in the confession that they had, that they believe in, in me and in my grace. Don't take them out of the world, but sanctify them in truth. See how the truth, the gospel, 
sanctifies us, changes us. Your word is truth, Jesus says. This is the prayer of Jesus. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, listen, for their sake, I consecrate myself. Jesus praying, say, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I give myself as the offering so that these people might be sanctified in truth. His consecration is our sanctification. His sacrifice is our perfection. That's what the gospel does. He carries on in verse 21, verses 20 to 21. It says, I do not ask for these only. He's not just praying for the people in that room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us here today. If you've believed in Jesus through your word, if you've made a confession of your faith, I believe in Jesus, it says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. We become a part of God. We are, we are hidden with God in Christ. We are hidden in God. We are sealed, the Bible says, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our faith unites us with God through Jesus and it unites us with one another. So Jesus prays for us in this moment and this is what he prays. If he was here this morning, this is what he would pray, that we would be in Christ through faith. Let them be a part of us, Father, as you and I are one. Let them be in me, that we would be hidden in, in God and that we would be one with one another, that we would be a part of this community. You see, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are a part of the church whether you're going there or not. Because you are, Jesus' prayer is, God, let them be one. Let them be united. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. We're a family. We're, we're, we're all part of the, the body of Jesus. As we are in Christ, we are also in one another. And the love of God fills us. It fills this room. It fills our community. It fills our connect groups. It fills our preaching. It fills our worship, the love of God. Finally, the most encouraging thing. We read earlier that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But guess what he is doing there? Guess what Jesus is doing as he sits at the right hand of God? The scriptures tell us he is still praying for us now. He actually is praying for you right now. And every day, all day, making intercession. It tells us this in Hebrews, and it tells us this in Romans 8.34. This is my last scripture, Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Who condemns you? If you make a mistake, if you, if you struggle, who condemns you? Who is to a condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was condemned. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Bible says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is the one who pleads your case. And when you sin, 
Jesus is at the right hand going, but Jesus, I died for that. The Father, I died for that. I have, I have paid for that sin. That sin has been dealt with. So we don't have to live with the sin consciousness. We, the body of sin has been done away with, so we don't need to live in sin any longer. We can walk and trust in our, in our adoption as children of God and walk out the holy life and the holy calling that God has for us. I want to encourage you this morning to know that Jesus is praying for you, that he is our high priest and our savior. He's the high priest who sacrificed himself on the altar. So don't trust in your own sacrifices. Trust in the finished work of the cross. Amen? All right, let's pray.